0: Let's go ahead and we'll begin our time tonight. Our Father, we thank you that you bled and died through your Son on our behalf, that you demonstrated your love for us, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. May those truths never leave us. May they reverberate deep into our mind and soul that we would be challenged each and every day to take up our cross and to follow you. We know that some of the most important truths that we can help one another with is both our assurance and our security that you have promised us in Christ Jesus. So help us by the Holy Spirit tonight, our teacher, to understand these truths, and we give them to you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, we are in topic number one, and a topic typically takes three or four weeks to conclude, sometimes longer. Uh, we are not rushing through it per se. Our goal is for you to really understand it in a way that you can communicate it. And again, we have six objectives there on page one to distinguish between assurance of salvation and eternal security. So there is a difference if that's new to you. It's one thing to say, I know I'm saved. It's another thing to say, I know I'll be saved five or 10 years from now. And so approximately 10 percent of evangelical denominations teach assurance, but they do not affirm the eternal security of the believer. And uh, I'm reluctant sometimes to name denominations because there's always an exception to the rule. But generally speaking, Methodists, Episcopalians, uh, for those Episcopalians that still believe the Bible, uh, they sadly uh, have for the most part abandoned it, and they've splintered off into new denominations where they're not a part of the Episcopal Church in America, especially in our state, um, Nazarenes, uh, uh, the Christian church denomination, Disciples of Christ. and So there are some splinter groups and there are some denominations, African Methodist, Episcopalian, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that teach you can lose your salvation. That's not a biblical doctrine. That is an untruth and it's important that we understand why that is not true. And unfortunately, people have taken the doctrine of eternal security and they've abused it. And they've presumed on the grace of God falsely. And so we will deal with the full balanced view, I hope, before we're finished uh, with this handout. We're also looking at promises that relate to assurance of salvation. We'll hone on those tonight. Uh, We're going to look at three evidences that show someone has genuinely been converted. Uh, We're gonna talk about how God's grace motivates us to change our way of life, to live godly. Number five there, the difference between those who profess Jesus as Lord and those who actually possess Him. And then with each of these handouts, there are two verses of scripture that we're seeking to memorize. All right, so, so far we've looked at the provision of salvation. We looked at John chapter three, if you're here. These are foundational verses. We looked at Romans three. We looked at the book of Galatians chapter 2. We looked at Titus 3 last time. We didn't get to the last two, so let's turn there to Luke chapter 18, the gospel of Luke chapter 18. So again, in this section, what we're showing is that the reason, among other reasons, by which we can know that we are assured of salvation and eternally secure is that salvation is totally by the grace of God and not in any way, shape, or form merited if salvation were even a little bit merited, if there was some things that you had to do or keep doing, then you could never have assurance of salvation. It's not based on human merit, it is totally based on a work that is finished. So assurance is that, but not only is assurance based on that, because again, there are denominations that would affirm that, that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone and not by human works. And they would say, on that basis, you're assured, but on that same basis as we will see, we can uh, hold to the truth that we are eternally secure. Luke chapter 18, I hope you found it. Uh, The chapter opens uh, with Jesus, among other things, giving them a parable about our need to pray and that men ought not to lose heart when they pray. Uh, that we ought to persevere in prayer, not because God is bothered like the unrighteous judge, but because he loves us and cares about us. And sometimes he calls us to persist in prayer. But let's pick it up in verse 9. He uh, also told this parable, second parable, to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And by the way, that's the heart of the problem with all false teaching. You trust in yourself that you're righteous, and conversion doesn't take place until you acknowledge and affirm that you are not righteous, that you're not good enough. And people who tend to think that they can merit righteousness look at other people with contempt for the simple reason they view themselves typically as better. Two men, Jesus said, verse 10, went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. We spoke about the Pharisees. The word, the Greek word for Pharisee means a separated one. And so these men, there was about 6,000 of them in the day of Christ. Uh, Just like the Sadducees were leaders with the Pharisees and there were some other groups like the Herodians and so forth, but the two major groups were Pharisees and Sadducees. The Sadducees had as their locus of power the temple region Whereas the Pharisees had as their center of power the synagogue system. The synagogue system developed, if you remember, during the time of the Babylonian captivity. The Jewish people were carried away, first by the Assyrians, then by the Babylonians, and so they had no temple where they could go and worship. So how would they congregate? In the synagogue, in the synagogue. And so they raised up these synagogues across the land. And you could, on the Sabbath day, go to the synagogue, and you could uh, worship and hear the rabbi open the Scripture like Jesus does in Nazareth in Luke 4. Or you could, on other occasions, uh, make your way to the temple, and every Pious Jew did at least three times a year. So two men went up to the temple. So they're not in a synagogue, they're at the temple, Then the temple precincts, which is right there in Jerusalem, just one temple where God said His name could dwell. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Tax collectors, you know what they were. Uh, They basically stole from people, and they had the force of Rome behind them. And so if you were a tax collector, like Matthew was, you were considered a despised individual because you not only collected what was um, due, but oftentimes what was not due, And you had the power of Roman soldiers to back you up. And it was a very lucrative position, well-paid by the Roman government, and a lot of greedy people in it, and so people just hated tax collectors. I think they still do, I'm not sure. Anyway, the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. In one sense, that's what he's doing. He's really praying to himself. I mean, not literally. I don't think, you know, people, expositors make a, a big deal here that he's only praying to himself and not to God. When it says he's praying to himself, what Luke is revealing or what Jesus is for us is what was going on inside of his heart when he made his prayer to God. But in one sense, it is indeed a self-centered prayer. In fact, the word I, the pronoun I appears five times. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. So comparatively speaking, he was righteous, and he viewed these other people with contempt because he didn't engage in some of these things. And positively, he was engaged in other things, fasting twice a week. Many of the Jews did. They fasted twice a week. Immemorial of the day Moses went up on the mountain to get the law, and then the day that he came down off the mountain to give the law. I gave a tenth of all that he had. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast. It's a verb here that doesn't come out in some translations, but over and over and over and over and over and over and over over again, he was beating his breast because he was acknowledging the heart of the problem. It was the problem of the heart. He said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, if you have the NASB, you will notice there's a little uh, number one right before the word merciful. And if you go out into the marginal notes, which is helpful, it says, God, be propitious to me, the sinner. And if you remember, we studied last week the word propitiation. We looked at some key critical terms, justification, redemption, reconciliation, propitiation. Those are all words that every Christian should know in his vocabulary because they speak much about God and they speak much about our identity that we now have in Christ. The doctrine of propitiation means that anger has been appeased. It was used in pagan circles. It's used today sometimes of someone who says, well, you know, I was propitiated on the heels of so-and-so's action, or, or um, I was a sacrifice of propitiation. I was, the, you know, the battering ram that they used to, to make me look bad and themselves look good. So we use it even today, but in a biblical concept, it speaks to the fact that God's anger has been satisfied through a substitute. We saw that last week in Romans, that God gave of himself in Christ to save us from himself, namely his wrath. There was a translation that came out in the 1950s, C.H. Dodd produced it. It was called the RSV, and he didn't like the word propitiation. In my course on bibliology, we discussed this because it expressed that God is wrathful. And some people don't like that, so they used another word, but it's not representative of any other English translation. God is angry at sin. God will punish sin. But God, in his mercy and grace, has provided a way of escape so that he doesn't have to punish us. And if he does punish us, it's because we rejected his provision. So God, be propitious to me, the sinner. In other words, this man is looking to God. Now, obviously, he's on this side of the cross. He's on the side of the cross where there were animal sacrifices that prefigured what Messiah would do. We discussed this a little bit last week with Passover, one of the seven feasts that God instituted for Israel. God be propitious, merciful to me, the sinner. And he doesn't say a sinner. It's articular in the original. Be propitious to me, the sinner. I'm not just a sinner, Lord. I'm a sinner of sinners. And really, when, when people are under deep conviction, that's the way they see themselves, and that's healthy because that's the road towards salvation. And Jesus' response is, I tell you, this man went to his house justified. We saw that word last week. It does not declare a, it does not describe a process. It, it describes an act. Justification is an act where God declares you righteous in his sight. He not only wipes the slate cr- clean, he credits you with Christ's righteousness. He went home justified rather than the other, mainly, namely the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So there is an illustration of what we looked at in these uh, five central passages from Galatians, Titus, Romans, and the Gospel of John. While we're here, turn over just a couple pages to Luke chapter 23. Um, Again, a beautiful example of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and not on human merit. Uh, We read in... um, Pick it up in verse uh, 36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now if you read Matthew's account it's not contradictory it's complementary. And so in Matthew 27:44 the Matthew indicates remember the crucifixion took place from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. 6 hours on that good Friday. That both men were cursing railing and blaspheming the word is all. We get our word blaspheme from Matthew's gospel. They were blaspheming the Lord, both of them. But Luke gives us an insight that Matthew does not, that one had a change of heart. But the other, verse 40, answered, rebuking him, said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. We're sinners, he's sinless. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He understood that maybe from attending the temple as a young man, these are three Jews hanging on three crosses. Maybe he attended temple, maybe he attended the synagogue out in the village. But he heard at some point in his life that the Messiah would come, And he was engaged in a political upheaval to overthrow Rome and he was investing his life in the wrong cause in the kingdoms of man rather than the kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven. And so he came to grip that he has to be the Messiah. He has to be the one who is going to die and not just die, but as Isaiah said, his body would not undergo decay. He would rise again from the dead. He has a kingdom. Then it's not over for him that day in some grave where he's thrown like most crucified men in the Valley of Hinnon there in outside the city wall of Jerusalem. No, he he is the one that is not only going to die but rise again. He has a kingdom. This guy had incredible faith. God spoke to him in the final moments of his life. This man who had been blaspheming God to his face, now cries out for mercy. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said today, this day, you'll be with me in paradise. Salvation by grace, beautiful example. Lived a rebellious life, swore and cursed God Almighty to his face, yet he's converted. There's only one deathbed conversion in all the Bible. I think most of you know that, and it's this man. God gave us one so that none would presume, and He gave us one that none would despair. Don't presume and say, I will, like this man at the last minute, turn and call upon Jesus in faith, because most people don't. I've led a few people to Christ on their deathbed. But I've also talked to some people in the deathbed that did not know Christ and still weren't interested. It was really sad. And some people that I prayed for on their deathbed who, as far as I knew, unless they had a change of heart, were lost. And you couldn't communicate with them. So there is an urgency, a sense of urgency that we should have. I've been in too many funeral homes, over too many caskets, with too many believers saying, I I wish I had been more forthright in trying to win dad or my brother here or my cousin to Christ. One that none will presume, but one so that none will despair. But again, a beautiful picture. Now, Roman numeral two there on your outline, the promises for salvation. So again, with each of these sections, I give you kind of a theological thrust of where we're going, so that if you're trying to disciple someone, this is the main ideas that you want to project. God promises us over and over again that once Christ saves us, he saves us forever. Salvation is not something that can be lost because it is not something that can be earned. The Bible teaches that you can know that you have eternal life, 1 John 5. The Apostle John did not say hope so or wish so or maybe have. The Bible is clear. Not only may the believer gain assurance of his salvation where he knows that he is saved, but he may also rest in the permanence of his salvation. The question that is often asked, once one is genuinely saved by trusting in the merit of Christ's death on the cross, can that Christian lose his salvation? Is there anything we can do to lose our salvation? And the clear answer from the Bible is no. Why? Because Scripture clearly affirms that we are saved by Christ's work on the cross and not by anything we do. The following passages are a sampling of over 150 passages in the New Testament that teach that we can be assured and confident of our eternal security. All right, so this is important. Now, it's funny because, again, about 10% worldwide teach that you can lose your salvation. Some would put that at 25% in the United States. I don't know. You read missiologist numbers, but sometimes they're hard to discern. But what I find interesting is that very often is that small minority who think you can lose it sometimes capture the attention of believers and create a lot of confusion and doubt. And typically, in churches that teach you can lose your salvation, there's confusion over what the gospel itself is. If someone comes to this church and they identify the denomination they are coming from, out of Methodism came Pentecostals, the Assemblies of God, Nazarenes, et cetera, and they come from denominations like that, it's almost a 50 50 chance whether or not they even have assurance of salvation. Because typically, If someone thinks you can lose your salvation, they reason, then there's something I have to do to earn it or to keep salvation, and it becomes a works righteousness. That's not always true, but it is often the case. And for many a new Christian, one of the most important things that you can help them with is their eternal security. I still have the first Bible that I was given as a new believer. And in the back of that Bible, I have a list of all the verses that I began to catalog in the back of my Bible that spoke of that once we're saved, we're saved forever. It was very assuring, very encouraging. So let's look at some of those verses. You can see we're going to look at them on three levels. Our eternal security from the standpoint of the Son, that's point A. Our security from the standpoint of the Father. And our eternal security from the standpoint of the Spirit. All right, so let's start with some of the promises that Jesus made. Go to the Gospel of John, and we'll just kind of walk through some of them. John chapter 3, if you will, John chapter 3. And when you meet with a new Christian, whether it's a son or a daughter or a granddaughter or a grandson or or a businessman, I remember leading a, a Bible study in Dallas, and I was a president of executive ministries for Dallas and uh, the city of Dallas, and we had all these CEOs of major corporations and other things, and these guys, you know, made tons and tons of money, but most of them were all brand-new Christians, and they had come to Christ, and they didn't know which end was up. They knew everything in the business world, but they couldn't find the gospel of John, And that's pretty typical today. People don't know anything about the Bible, and that's why you want to get them a paper copy of the Bible, to begin to learn their way around it. Um, I mentioned, I think, some weeks back that some years ago, someone wanted to make slides for the discovery class, and I said, absolutely not. It defeats the need for the new believer. to to find the books of the Bible and to begin to learn his way around it. John chapter 3. I hope you found it by now. And uh, look at verse 16. We studied it last week. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Then he says, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged or you can render it condemned already. Why? Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the promise is, is if you've believed in the Son, you will not be condemned, you'll not be judged. Now, it is true there is another judgment for the believer. Sometimes we call it the Bema Seat or the judgment seat of Christ or the judgment of the just, and it's a judgment for Christians only but it's not a judgment over sin, it's a judgment over our service. But in terms of condemnation, that's the word that's used here, crino, In terms of a condemning judgment, there is no such judgment for the true child of God. That's the promise. Jesus didn't have to come into the world to judge the world. Why? Because the world's condemned already. And so that Verse in and of itself counters the false thought that many people have—that in the future God determines whether or not I'm going to make it into heaven when He weighs my good and bad works. And God says, "No, the, the judgment's already been made—guilty, condemned." But if you believe, you're not judged. Now that's a straight-out promise. Go to John chapter five for a moment. John chapter five. Look at verse. Uh, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, you got to hear it first, right, and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death in life. Now, could he have said it any more plainly? You do not come into judgment. That's the promise. And notice there are the tense of eternal life. It's not a future tense, but it is a present tense. The one who believes has this moment eternal life. If eternal life is something I can have this moment, and it's truly Ionian, eternal, everlasting, then you can't lose it. It's an oxymoron to say that you can lose something that's eternal. It's a total contradiction of terms. But again, most people, they think of eternal life as something out in the future, and there's a future enjoyment of eternal life in heaven that's different from what we experience on earth. But eternal life, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Christ whom you have sent. Turn over to John chapter 6, just over a page in a lot of your Bibles, and look, if you will, at verse um, 26. Uh, By the way, the the setting here is what we call the Bread of Life Discourse. This is one of um, miracle that's actually recorded in all four Gospels where Jesus fed 5,000 heads of households, excluding women and children, so we might call it the feeding of the 20,000. And so the next day after he uh, feeds the 20,000, they leave Bethsaida on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and they cross back over the lake and they come to a little town called Capernaum. Capernaum is a very important place in Christ's life. Four critical places you think of Christ's life. Bethlehem, where he was born, Nazareth, where he was raised, Capernaum, that were his headquarters during his earthly ministry. And so it's called in one gospel, the home of Christ. Remember, he was basically, you know, rejected in Nazareth, though he goes back a year later and preaches again after they try to throw him off a cliff because he still loved the people of Nazareth. And he makes as his headquarters, Capernaum, and the fourth place, of course, is Jerusalem. So he's in the synagogue in Capernaum. And some of you have been to that synagogue with me. Now, the floor, the original floor, is underneath the rocks that you're on. But you're on the actual synagogue when you go to Capernaum that Christ taught in. And so Jesus said and and answered them in verse 26, truly, truly, amen, amen, literally. I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. It's not something you earn. He gives to you. For in Him the Father, God, has set His seal. Therefore they said to Him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to Him, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom he has sent. That's the work of God that secures uh, the food that endures to eternal life. You'll notice the next verse on your handout, verse 37 from this chapter. He continues, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all, circle that word all, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, underline that, lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. There's an unbroken chain there. Jesus said, I didn't come to do my will. I came to do the Father's will. Wonderful. What's the Father's will? The Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him will be raised up on the last day. And Jesus said, that's what I've come to do. So for Jesus not to raise up on the last day, someone who has genuinely believed in him would be to disobey the Father's will. And he didn't come to disobey it. Again, there's no leakage in this verse in terms of how secure we are. And so then in verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes, again, notice the tense, has eternal life. The next verse, go to chapter 10, chapter 10, if you will, John chapter 10, and uh, verse 27. Jesus said, my sheep, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So if you're one of Christ's sheep, you know the Lord. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. So a mark that someone is one of Christ's sheep is their life has changed. They follow Christ. But notice, I give. We don't earn. I give. Salvation is without cost to us. It's free. It's a gift. I give eternal life to them, and they shall Never perish. It's an incredible promise. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I am the Father are one. Sometimes I'll illustrate it with a new Christian. I'll just take a little piece of paper and I'll say, let's say this is you, and let's say this hand is Christ. Jesus says, I give you eternal life, and you shall never perish. No one shall snatch you out of my hand. My Father who has given me to you is greater than all, and no one shall snatch you out of my Father's hand. I and the Father, we're one, we're God, we're equal. So it's not that you hold on to God, God holds on to you. That's the thrust of our security. First John 5, uh, we'll come back to this uh, more next week, but let me just read it. First John 5, because it's a misunderstood verse, and we'll look at it in more detail, but still the truth is... Here is very very plain that the Lord makes concerning our salvation, in First uh, John five. This is a good memory verse at the end of the handout. And so, and the testimony is this that God has given us. The testimony, you could render it, the witness is this that God has given us. Again, we don't earn it. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. You either have the Son or you don't. You're either saved or you're not. There's no in-between. Well, how do I know if I have the Son? Verse 13, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. The ones who believe in the name of the Son of God may know that you have eternal life. Again, we'll hit on this a little bit next week, but... Some people have taken this verse to say, well, some people are saved and they just don't know they're saved. And so John is writing to them so that they can know that they're saved. And they miss the thrust of the whole book. The thrust of the book is he is dealing with false teachers who have come into the church who are saying, you can live this way, a way that totally denies Jesus and still say you're a good Christian. And so what John does in the book, and we'll look at it in detail next week, is he looks at some marks of someone who truly has believed. And so when he comes to the end of his little short letter, these things, what things, the things I've been describing here... And I'll look at those in detail with you next time. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So, you can... In other words, if you have these things true in your life, like by this we know we've passed out of death in the life we love the brethren. A mark that you are born again is you love God's people. If someone says, I love the Lord and I don't love God's people, he's just lying to himself and he's lying to others. So there's certain marks of conversion that he is going to underscore. You might want to read it between now and next week, First John. See if you can pick out some of the marks of conversion. And so when he comes to the end of the letter, these things I've written to you so that you can know for sure that you have genuine faith in Christ. All right, so again, these verses, though, speak of a no-so salvation. Or Hebrews chapter 12, that would be another one. You could just turn back a few pages to the left from where you are in 1 John, Hebrews 10. And again, it's assurance that we have based on Christ's finished work. Uh, Notice Hebrews 10, and why don't you just pick it up in uh, verse 11. Uh, He's writing to Hebrews, Jewish Christians, who are trying to escape persecution by going back and participating in the temple ritual system to look more Jewish and you could see how maybe some of them could reason that way. Well, you know, Paul, you know, kept a vow not to get his hair cut and some other things, but those were really being all things to all men. But to go back to temple worship was to really say that Christ's death was not sufficient. They weren't saying that, but they were saying it by the way they were living. And so he reminds them, for instance here, every priest, verse 11, stands daily ministry and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footfall footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he is perfected for some time. It doesn't say that, does it? He is perfected for all time, forever. This again speaks of our security that Christ purchased us. He has perfected for all time, forever and ever and ever, those who are sanctified by Christ. Okay, let's look at our eternal security from the standpoint of God the Father. Go to the book of Romans, would you? Romans chapter five, Romans chapter five for a moment. Book of Romans, three major divisions to it. The doctrinal section one through eight, the national section nine through 11, and then the applicational section 12 through 16. So in the doctrinal section, he deals with three major doctrines, the doctrine of condemnation, the doctrine of justification, and the doctrine of sanctification, very, very important doctrines. And so in Romans 5, let's just read, we'll pick it up in verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, we're not justified by human merit. We looked at that last week from Romans 3, 18 to 28. We're justified by grace alone through faith alone. And we have peace with God. Not necessarily the peace of God. Paul speaks of the peace of God in Philippians. You can have peace with God and have all kinds of turmoil in your heart. Here he's talking about peace with God that you have by virtue of the fact that you are rightly related to God through Christ. Look at verse 6. For while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God, speaking of the Father, but God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved, future, from the wrath of God through him. For if while we're enemies, we're reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life." So he's giving a logical argument as to why we can know as believers that we are eternally secure. Look at the adjectives and nouns that are used to describe us. We're helpless in verse six. We're ungodly in verse six. You should underline or circle those. Uh, In verse 8, we were sinners. In verse 10, we were enemies. So follow the logic. While we're helpless and that we're unable to save ourselves, God says you're helpless. I like to use the word bankrupt often. You're bankrupt in terms of being able to please God. You're bankrupt. All of us are. We're helpless. Yet at the right time, Christ died not for good people, for ungodly people. Now, it is true he died for all. But he died... Specifically, with the objective for those who will come and identify themselves as ungodly. People who know they need a savior. It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick, right? For one will hardly die for a righteous man, a dichios man, though perhaps for a kolos, a good man, someone would dare even to die. A dichios man, a righteous man, is someone who does just what's required of him. He is legally judicially so to speak, faithful to the requirements that he has to do. You might even have a parent who does that. He, he, he does what the law requires of him as a parent. Now, most parents aren't that way. If that's the only way they are, they're very unhealthy. Though for a good man, a coloss man, a warm, kind, wonderful man, perhaps for that kind of person you would die. For a righteous man, someone who's cold and upright in his behavior, you might die, probably not die for him. But for your mother, who is warm and kind and loving and sacrificial to you, you'd probably die for that kind of person. But God, by contrast, dies for sinners. While we're enemies... You might die for your best friend, but would you die for your enemy, the person who hated you and despised you? You say, well, I wasn't God's enemy. He says you were. By nature, you are a child of wrath. Now, it is true, little children, before they reach a point of accountability, can indeed come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And many times they do. But still, even that little child who's 8, 9, 10 years old, there's a conviction of sin. They, they realize that they've displeased God Almighty. And as we grow and mature and we age and we continue in obstinance, God gives us the designation a child of wrath, an enemy of God but follow the logic. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more now having been justified, declared righteous, how? By his blood, not by our works. We shall be saved from the wrath of God to come. Remember, there are three tenses of salvation in the New Testament. We have been saved in the past from the penalty of sin. We call that justification. We are being saved today as we grow up in Christ from the power of sin. We call that sanctification. God is shaping us and making us more like Christ. But Paul looks here at the future tense of salvation. We will be saved in the future. We call that glorification. How can I be so certain, Paul, that in the future, I'll be saved from the coming wrath. You want the new believer to get this. You want him to understand this. This is liberating to him. And I've met people who come to this church sometimes who've been believers for 25 and 30 years, and they don't have it yet. This is basic Christianity that is being overlooked in our day. So his rationale is, if God could save you while you're helpless and that you're bankrupt and unable to save yourself, while you're ungodly unlike him, while you're a sinner, a rebel falling short of his glory, while you're an enemy opposed to him, if God could save you in that state, if God can save his enemies, certainly God can keep his friends. That's the rationale. For if while we're enemies, we're made friends. We're reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more now that we're reconciled, now much more that we're his friends, certainly he'll secure us for eternity. So he's using a logic of sense. And Scripture, on occasion, uses divine logic, not man-made logic, but divine logic. If God can save his enemies, certainly he can keep his friends. And so he argues for our security. I only looked at one half of this section on one, that we have peace with God. How do we know we have peace with God? The love of the Holy Spirit has been poured out in our hearts, so experientially, but also objectively as we look at the cross of Christ. Now go to Romans chapter 8, another critical text on the eternal security of the believer. He says in verse 28. This is a verse, I'm going to give you a list of the 100 most important verses every Christian should memorize by the time we're done with the course, and Romans 8:28 is one of them. For we know, and we know, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So this is not a wholesale verse where, you know, unbelievers say, well, you know, everything has a way of working itself out. No, this is a verse for, it's actually, it looks like a verb in the New American Standard. The King James is actually most precise. It's actually a noun, to those who are the called. He's referring to a specific group of people. God works everything together for good for who? For those who are the called. And the called in the context refers to save people. God has a way of working everything together for our good. Why? Because those whom he predestined, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. The doctrine of predestination is a doctrine that speaks of the fact that when God saves you, He's predestined you to an end. It's called glorification. And He predestines you based on His foreknowledge. And this word foreknowledge is used in three other places in the New Testament. Someone just called on the Bible line a few weeks ago about that, and we went through three passages where it just means prior knowledge. Now, people want to manipulate it, but when you look at it in Acts and 1 Peter and other places just means prior knowledge, something you knew ahead of time. And God in His foreknowledge knew who would be saved. If God didn't know that, God would not be God. And God's foreknowledge does not in any way, shape, or form change your free will. So God's foreknowledge leads to His predestinary will to make you like Christ. Well, if he and he goes through this really golden chain of salvation, that all that he's called, he's justified, all that he's justified, he's glorified. In God's mind, he uses past tenses here, it's as good as done. Every single one, it's unbroken, that God calls in the end is glorified. Are you sure, Paul? What then shall we say to these things, verse 31? If God is for us, who is against us? Absolutely no one. It's a rhetorical question. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, will he not also with him freely give us all things? Yes, he will. Well, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Answer, no one. How so? Because God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns us? Absolutely no one. Christ Jesus Is he who died? Yes, rather, he was raised. Who's at the right hand of God? Who intercedes for us? What is he doing interceding for us? We studied that in our series on the Revelation. He lives to make intercession for us. So any even accusation that comes from the evil one, Christ defends us. He's our advocate before the Father. That's why no one can bring a charge against God's elect. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, he was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. There's a sermon just in that verse, but just don't miss this. The Romans are living under Nero. The Neronian persecutions are soon to start. Persecution is prevalent and its growing. Christ came into a dark world, and the world he comes back to will replicate the first century world. And persecution at the end of the age will grow, especially after the church is raptured, but it could grow before the church is raptured the Supreme Court of the United States this week passed a wicked, wicked law. Or or they might as well pass a law. I know they don't technically pass laws, but they, they make laws from the bench. And so they interpret the law, and so in interpreting the law, they made a law. It's what I have been seeing for years that I feared that they would make Transgender and homosexual people, et cetera, et cetera, that they would make this a civil rights issue. And perversion is not a civil rights issue, but our nation now says it is. And as this unfolds, there will be great implications for Christians, for churches, for employers and on we could go, and the nation. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord." I have a sermon just on this, and it goes through every conceivable thing in the entire universe. Anything you can think of, not even yourself, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's think about our eternal security for a moment from the standpoint of God the Holy Spirit. Go to the book of Ephesians. So you're in Romans. Flip over to the book of Ephesians. So after Romans, you come through 1 and 2 Corinthians, and then you come to those little short books, Gary Eats Popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, go everywhere preaching Christ, all right? And then all the T books in the Bible, that go from long to short. So you have Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1. Notice what the apostle writes in verse 13 in him, the him and the context is Jesus, in Christ. You also, after listening to the message of truth, by the way, you have to hear the message of truth before you can be converted. Let that burn into your heart when you think about trying to win people to Jesus. Because sometimes Christians give a word of testimony or they try to bring in some little line about the Lord, and that's very important. I'm not dismissing that or diminishing it. But someone has to hear the message of truth, the the gospel, the plan of salvation to be converted. And if we don't give them the necessary information, we can't expect conversion to happen. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Do you understand the argument? You hear the gospel, you believe the gospel, and the Holy Spirit seals you. He comes in you, and He is locked in there as an earnest, as a pledge, as a down payment, depending on your rendering. You know what earnest money is? You say, I want to buy this $300,000 house, and I'm so certain I'm going to buy it. Here is a $5,000 deposit. And if I don't come through with a contract, you get to keep my $5,000. It's kind of a promise. Well, men break promises, and men lose earnest money all the time. But God doesn't break any promises. And the Holy Spirit of God is your earnest that what he began. Well, so he comes, and he seals you. Turn over a couple of pages to chapter 4, Ephesians 4, and look at verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. By the way, don't ever call the Holy Spirit an it or a thing or a... He's not an it or a thing. He is a person. He is as much God as the Father or the Son, co-equal, co-eternal. You don't grieve forces. You grieve people and he can be grieved. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for how long? For the day of redemption. Again, the same truth brought out in Ephesians 1. He is looking towards that redemption, that, that final day when your salvation is completed. Remember, you have been saved. You are being saved. You will be saved. Future tense, glorification. When God redeems your body, this mortality will put on immortality, this perishable will put on the imperishable, and you'll have a body made like His where you will never, ever, ever be able to sin again. And the Holy Spirit is your earnest, your guarantee that He's going to pull that off. Go back a couple pages to 2 Corinthians one 2 Corinthians one twenty-two. again, the similar truth It says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also, one twenty two, sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. He's God's guarantee, God's down payment. As Philippians one six says, He who began a good work in you will, 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 will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's a guarantee. All right, then John 14, verse 16. Go back to John, verse chapter 14, Gospel of John. This is pre-Pentecost, and Jesus is reminding them of the promise of the new covenant that the prophets of old spoke of that none of them experienced, but we know as believers. John 14, 16, Upper Room Discourse. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. That speaks of security. When He comes to live in you, He comes to live in you forever and ever and ever. It is heresy to say that you can lose your salvation. It is bad doctrine. It is not healthy doctrine. It is unsound. And it is very destructive in a person's life. So God affirms not only our assurance, but our security. Now, some people will say, well, wait a minute. There are some passages over here and there that seem to teach that you can lose your salvation. A good rule of thumb is you always interpret what is unclear in light of what is clear. There are approximately 150 passages in the New Testament that affirm our eternal security. And if God over and over and over and over again says you can never lose it, there's nine, ten, depending on how you look at it. And we'll look at some of them and we'll see that they're really not as unclear as some people make them. And if God inspired the whole of Scripture, right down to the smallest Hebrew letter and the smallest mark of the Hebrew pen, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if the Scripture is that inspired, right down to the tenses of a verb, as Jesus made an argument for his own deity in one occasion, right down to a singular versus a plural, as Paul argued in Galatians, if the Scripture is that inspired, then it is without error. And so if you have... Dozens and dozens of passages that affirm our eternal security. And a handful over here that are seemingly unclear. When you look at them, their are contexts that are not unclear at all. They're often dealing with the believer's discipline or physical death that comes on the believer, but not eternal death or the judgment seat of Christ or rewards, but not salvation. There's an explanation for all of them. All right, so... We'll pick it up here, God willing, next week. Let's bow our heads in prayer as Pastor Ed comes to lead us. Now, our Father, we love you and thank you for the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, that nothing can separate us from your great love. If we who are evil know how to love our children, my, how you love us. Thank you for this grace that teaches us to deny worldliness and ungodliness and to want to live holy and righteously in this present age. Help us, Father, to teach our children these truths, to teach our grandchildren these truths. And new believers that will come into our church, please, our Father, we pray that we would do even a better job of getting each and everyone all the way through the discovery class as they learn and mind these truths for themselves. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.